All right, so today and next week, uh, it's business week uh, here at Valley Brook. So I'm going to take a little break in our study of Genesis. And um, I'm going to take a look at this verse, 1 Corinthians 14.40. Now, my wife, um, she's a Presbyterian. She was raised Presbyterian. And this is the Presbyterian's favorite verse. But all things should be done decently and in order. Uh, Especially when it comes to the order of service, you've got the bulletin printed, and they can follow right along, no deviation. For the pastor to come up and have a time of sharing like we did, that would have had to gone through seven or eight committees to get that approved, okay? So everything has to be done decently and in order. Um, Elizabeth, that's her favorite verse. Her second favorite verse is in John, you know, when Jesus is about to raise from the dead and come out of the tomb. It says there was a separate head cloth that he folded and placed on in the tomb. And she's always taught the kids, if Jesus took time to make his bed before leaving the grave, you can make your bed. All right, everything decently and in order. It's a total... Total misappropriation of Scripture, but it works, okay? Speaking of order, Paul writes to Titus, and he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. All right? So, um, as I said, end of August is when we have our budget meeting and our annual meeting. It's time to do church business and put things in order. So I want to kind of do an evaluation sermon this morning. Not because anything's necessarily out of order, but because I think it's good to occasionally just uh, take stock and and, uh, evaluate how we're doing as a church, how we're doing as Christians, uh, how we're doing in relationship to Scripture. Now... um, While we are technically a Baptist church, you could say that our pedigree is more that of a mutt. Um, We've got Catholic backgrounds, Lutheran, some Pentecostal, some Charismatic, some from megachurches, some from little tiny churches, some from ultra-liberal churches, some from ultra-conservative churches, And as much as everybody um, assumes they're doing things biblically, we have to realize that many times we are more influenced by our church background than we are by the Bible. So I think it's good to to sometimes hold up some some standards of measurement uh, to make sure we're all on the same page as we do church. You know, as I look back at being a pastor, um, I I remember a number of times people saying things like, well, I've never heard of that in church. Like one time, um, and this was when I was first pastoring up in in, uh, Wisconsin, uh, during the offertory, I had scheduled a, uh, a woman to sing. And right before the service, the mother comes up to me irate. I'm like, what's the matter? And she says, uh, don't you know you never schedule somebody to sing a solo during the offertory? I'm like, I didn't know that. Where is that written? 
And, uh, but in her mind, in her mind, this was uh, the Sunday for her daughter to shine, <laughs> and we couldn't be distracted by people passing plates. Now, I've been in plenty of churches where people sing during the offertory, but in her mind, that was a no-no. Okay? Um, I've had people say, you should never show a movie clip as a sermon illustration. That's entertainment. Entertainment doesn't belong in the church. Now, I would have to agree, especially in the 90s, everybody, every sermon was showing movie clips. It it turned into a movie house after a while, and it did get a little ridiculous. But then people put the rule down, never do movies. Don't have any kind of entertainment. And I agree, you can turn uh, the pulpit into a variety show, which is wrong. But is it always wrong? Is there never anything we can learn from a movie clip? Um, I've been told that unless you have a building within 10 years as a church plant, you will not survive. Here we are on our 14th year, is it? 13th year? Okay. Um, You must sing out of a hymnal or you're compromising. Or you better burn the hymnals or you're going to die. Okay. You should never mention abortion or homosexuality. It's too controversial. Or every sermon should be about abortion or homosexuality. Okay. Uh, you should not make people stand so long during singing. It's just not biblical. Um, you shouldn't pass a plate during the offertory. You should have a box in the back, just like Jesus did. PowerPoint is wrong. It encourages people not to bring their Bibles. Better use PowerPoint. We all have different Bibles. How are we supposed to know which one to read? Okay. So lots of opinions about how to do church, how not to do church, absolute rights, absolute wrongs, most of it not biblical. Okay. But here's what I want to do. I want to hold up four points of evaluation I, I, I kind of look at it like this. You know when you make a puzzle, um, you find the corners first, and then you try to build the lines, the box, and then you fill it all in? These would be four corners of, of evaluation to, to evaluate not just how we as a church are doing, I think how any church would be doing. Now, there's plenty of other things that could be fit into this evaluation. But I'm going to hold up these four things as the corners of, uh, of an evaluation point. Okay? So, first, discernment. Um, and, and this one has more to do with uh, how to evaluate the preaching at a church. Okay? Um, by the way, everybody who's ever told me that they have the gift of discernment has been one of the most undiscerning people I've ever met. Uh, usually people who think they have the gift of discernment are a little out there spiritually. They're getting messed. They're get, they're, they've got some direct line to God that they think they have, and they're all about discerning and judging. And uh, So be careful about... Uh, the, the gift of discernment. Make sure it's really from God and not your own emotions and your own feelings. Okay? But how do you know, how do you discern uh, 
where to go as uh, where to go to church as a Christian. All right. Um, I think, uh, let me just say it, I think there's a lot of bad preaching out there. Not that I have it mastered by any means. But if we can look to Scripture, is this all right? right? If we can look to Scripture and ask, are there any guidelines for how to preach? Um, I think we can then say, Let's use the scriptural guideline to evaluate preaching. So um, I'm going to talk about what I call law gospel preaching. Okay, what's law gospel preaching? Well, um, Romans 3 says this. Paul tells us the purpose of the law. Okay, Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, you might think that Paul is talking about, when he says the law, you might think he's talking about the Mosaic law and that all he's talking about here are Jews. But he says that the law should stop the mouth of the whole world. So the law that Paul originally starts talking about is the Jewish law, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. But I believe what he's doing here is he's saying not only is that law written on tablets of stone, it's written on the heart of every individual. The moral law of God holds everybody accountable. Okay? Then he says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You cannot be saved by law-keeping. Then what's the purpose of the law? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God has given us his law to reveal our sin to us. Law is given to reveal sin, so we will see that we are damned before a holy God. And then the good news, that's law, now the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God in his love sent his son to die as our substitute on the cross to pay the price for our sin. Law convicts and reveals our sin. Gospel rescues us. Right? So law, gospel, preaching reveals our sin and our damnation before God. The gospel reveals the rescue. Okay? Here's what's happened, and some of you know no different because it's all you've ever been exposed to your entire lives. In the early 70s and the 80s, um, a major shift took place in preaching. Law became seeker-friendly tips on how to have a better life. Come to church, we're really practical, and we will look through the book of Proverbs, and we will look through, uh, well, really, the whole of Scripture, but the goal is to have the person walk away not so much convicted of their sin, but impressed with how wise God is. And hopefully learn some principles that you can apply to your life to have a better life starting that week. 
Right? So the law became helpful tips for a better life. Not God's absolute standard that exposes your wicked heart and condemns you to hell. There's a huge difference between how the law is preached in a seeker-friendly church or a law gospel church. Now, how did Jesus preach? Uh, By the way, the standard book on seeker-oriented preaching, Rick Warren's book, um, which is is, uh, The Purpose Driven Church, he basically says people need practical teaching and there's no more practical uh, sermon in the world than the Sermon on the Mount. And you can preach through the Sermon on the Mount and people will walk away with practical life skills. And as I read the Sermon on the Mount, here's what I read. For example, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you that if you even lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. And what's the just penalty for adultery? He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. The standard has been raised from not just don't commit adultery, But if you lust, you've committed adultery, and the penalty is hell. You see, the way Jesus preached the law was as a a standard that nobody can attain. And it reveals our condemnation before a holy God. The smell of hell has not been smelt in many churches for many years. You know, there's even a way to preach through entire books of the Bible or to go to a Bible study that goes through entire books of the Bible, but the fear of hell is rarely felt. And I would say... What's the point? It's all about Christ and Him crucified. He came to die on the cross to save you from the wrath of God. If that gets moved out of the target, out of the bullseye, then we're just meeting for no reason. We're meeting because maybe we like each other, we like to have picnics, we like to, I don't know, church is a good thing. And I would say, if the issue is not your condemnation before a holy God and Christ and him crucified dying on a bloody cross, why meet? Why not rather go to the Rotary Club? When you miss that message, you miss everything. Now, you go... Well, Pastor Brian, that sounds a little extreme, this law gospel preaching. Are you sure this isn't just some new fad? Well, let me take you through a number of quotes. Um, some of you have seen these before. These are, uh, a lot of these are from Ray Comfort's material. But just to show you how far out of the norm we are today, in other words, we don't get to evaluate these guys. These guys get to evaluate us. 
right? A guy named Martin Luther said, the first duty of the gospel preacher is to declare God's law and show the nature of sin. Satan, the god of all dissension, stirs up daily new sects. And last of all, he has raised up a sect such as teach that men should not be terrified by the law, but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ. That's, Luther would look at today's church and say, that's exactly what I'm warning against. There's no fear of the law of God condemning us. He who has never experienced damnation can never be a good theologian. I think we have many men in the pulpit who, let me say it, aren't saved. They've never experienced damnation before God themselves. Therefore, how can they preach the fear of God and then the grace of God to others? They know how to grow a church, but they've never felt damnation themselves. John Wesley said, before I can preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, law, and judgment. And writing to a young friend, he went so far as to advise, preach 90% law and 10% grace. Now, I don't know where he gets his percentage there. Okay? You go, well, that's legalism. No, 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 no. Legalism is when you preach law as the means of salvation. This is preaching law to convict the sinner of his need for salvation, and then the gospel is the grace that saves us. Some people misuse the word legalism. Legalism, some people think that if you ever mention God's law in any way and show people that they're condemned by it, that that's legalism. No, that's just biblical truth. The gospel then rescues people from thinking they're saved by that legalism, and all the glory goes to Christ. A guy named Spurgeon said this, Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain, for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its ablest auxiliary, or most powerful weapon, when you have set aside the law. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that is to bring men to Christ. They will never accept grace till they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary and blessed purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. Skip that. A.B. Earl says, I've found by long experience, that's the true test, that the severest threatenings of the law of God have a prominent place in leading men to Christ. They must see themselves as lost before they will cry for mercy. They will not escape danger until they see it. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that you were raised in an evangelical environment where you just kind of slid in. And you've never been convicted that you are a deserving sinner, a deserving of hell. And you've never truly seen your real need for a bloody cross to save you. And you think you're saved. 
Why? Well, because I go to church and they preach out of the Bible and I agree with it all. But you've never been convicted of your own sinfulness because the methods that we've used to grow the church have bypassed conviction of sin. P.T. Forsyth, our churches are full of the nicest, kindest people who've never known the despair of guilt or the breathless wonder of forgiveness. A guy named D.L. Moody. God, being a perfect God, had to give a perfect law, and the law is given, the law was given not to save men, but to measure them. I want you to understand this clearly because I believe hundreds and thousands stumble at this point. They try to save themselves by trying to keep the law. But it was never meant uh, to man to save themselves. Ask Paul while it was given. Here is the answer that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law stops every man's mouth. I can always tell a man who is near the kingdom of God, his mouth is stopped. This then is why God gives us the law to show us ourselves in our true colors. Is there the regular smell of hellfire in your church? And by the way, when, when you say, Pastor, why do you ask those questions when this is your church? Well, because there are lots of people who listen on the Internet. There are pastors who listen. Guys, is there hellfire Does it smell of hellfire in your church ever? Then what are you doing in the ministry? Wasting people's times and eternities. Right? I uh, mentioned this church that we used to go to down in Florida. Beautiful place. People, uh, it's booked all the time for weddings because it's so beautiful. And uh, one day I was sitting there, I looked at the, uh, the mission statement and the bulletin. And here's their mission statement. Our purpose and mission is to provide an environment for a meaningful spiritual encounter with our Heavenly Father, sing a few songs, and go to the beach. And I, I looked at that and I go, not many, not many churches are that honest. But here, here's what they're saying. We know you're not going to listen that deeply anyways. You're on vacation. You're going to go to the beach. <laughs> Let's not disturb you. Let's just have a nice spiritual encounter, sing a few songs, and go to the beach. That's in their mission statement. Okay. In churches where law, gospel, is not preached, I guarantee you the pews are filled with unregenerate, unsaved people who are consumers, not disciples. Consumers are always evaluating church, evaluating others, evaluating this, evaluating that. They're consuming. Picking a church is no different than picking a store, picking a a website, shopping for a house, shopping for a car. Well, they have this to offer, this to, I don't like this, I don't like, wait a minute. Are you a consumer or a disciple? A disciple is more concerned about being saved from hell than whether the church has all the accoutrements. So here's here's an evaluation question. Do I want a church that regularly deals with the gravity of heaven and hell 
Or would I rather, quote, sing a few songs before I go to the beach? Honestly, ask yourself, you know what? If you've been finding yourself critical of this church, could it be that you're more of a consumer than a disciple? Maybe you've, you've adopted a consumer mentality as opposed to a discipleship mentality. All right, so that's, that's evaluation. Oh, boy, look what time it is. Let's do these quicker, all right? Number two. You know, sermonettes for Christianettes. Hang tight. All right. Baptism. Peter preached on, on Pentecost. They were cut to the heart because he convicted them that they had crucified the Messiah. And they said, what should we do and he said, brothers, or brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And 3,000 of them were baptized eh, when they got around to it. No, they were baptized that moment. 3,000 people got baptized the day they believed in Christ. You know, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Philip is the evangelist, and he's talking to a, uh, a, an official from Ethiopia. He's reading the, the scroll from Isaiah, and Philip explains the gospel to him. He believes. He says, hey, there's water. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So the question that a true disciple should ask is, why shouldn't I be baptized? You know what you hear a lot of today? Why should I be baptized? Or, my faith is personal and it's nobody else's business. Or, I was baptized as a baby. Or, I don't look real good soaking wet. Or, baptism doesn't save me, so what's the big deal? Okay. Um, do we do that with any other command of Scripture? By the way, just a little grammatical thing. Repent and be baptized. Those are uh, imperatives, commands. If you believe in Jesus, you know what you do? You get baptized. Doesn't save you. But you know what? None of the commandments save you. But that doesn't make them optional. Okay. Um, now, there are, are those... Now, now, let me say this. I realize that there's that, that question about your kids. Yeah, my five-year-old believes in Jesus. Should they get baptized? And I'm, I would lean more toward let's wait a while because they may believe in a lot of things that you tell them. Okay, so yes, there is that. I, 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 would, I would lean more toward let's push it into the teen years. Okay? Um, but at the same time, um, if, you're, if, if you think your child is ready to go and they're ready to go, then let's talk about it. Okay, so I realize there's the, uh, uh, there's the issue of when is my, my kid supposed to get baptized? 
Then there's the issue of the person who walked in for the first time today. They've never even heard of adult baptism. And they go, whoa, I got hit in the head with a log today. I've never even thought about this. That's, that's fine. You need to think about it. Okay. But then there's the person who for years is just not doing it. And I need to tell you, you're in rebellion against God. If you won't even take that first step of obedience, of course you're not going to follow him with all your heart. It is a dividing line. It is a call to get serious and not play games. It's a call to be serious. It's as as serious as your wedding vows. You go, well, I'm still weighing the options. Now, if you're still weighing the options, that's fine. I'd love to get together with you. But let's, let's talk about it. Let's get saved because hell is hanging in the balance. Pastor, are you saying that if I don't get baptized, I'm not saved? No. I'm saying if you're saved, you'll want to get baptized. Why wouldn't you? Why, why would you tell your Lord who hung on a cross? See, this is where it gets back to the first point. If you've never been convicted of your sin before a holy God, then what's the big deal? I'm not, my embarrassment is more important than following Christ and getting baptized. And it's embarrassing to get baptized. It's going to upset the family. What will my parents think? What if it gets out to my neighbors? That's what the unsaved person thinks. The person who has seen the flames of hell and has seen a a Savior bleeding on a cross and believes with all his heart that Jesus has saved him from the wrath of God, he looks at the water and says, I'm the first one in. Let me know. I'd like to schedule a baptism. Tell me today. Oh, by the way, then there's the person who says, well... I need to pray about it. And I just haven't been led. There's some things you don't even need to pray about. <gasps> we, you know what? There are some things that you don't need to pray. Don't commit adultery. You don't need to pray about that. You just don't do it. Don't embezzle from your boss. Don't do it. Right? Get baptized. Well, I need to pray about What's there to pray about? Some of you just need to see it as a command, not as a, ooh, Lord, shall I get baptized? Shall I cut off my affair? I haven't felt it. Nope. What do your feelings have to do with direct commands of God? Um, Let's keep going. What prevents me from being baptized is the question. Three, love. Love, love, love. Okay. This is love in the church. In Ephesians 3, Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. Now, a mystery is something that has been revealed in shadows in the Old Testament, but now it's revealed in full blazing color in the New Testament. And there's a mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They are members of the same body as who? Gentiles are, the, are members of the same body as who? Uh, the Jews. You see, 
in Old Testament times, God worked primarily with the Jews. Now the mystery is that all along, God has intended Jews and Gentiles to be together in one body called the church. Now, why is that such a big deal? Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. And God's plan all along is that these two formerly warring factions come together in one body and, and love one another. Okay? And then in verse 10, Paul says this, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Rulers and authorities, that's referring to angels and demons. Here's what this, this paragraph is saying. That through the church, where you take people of different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different personalities, maybe even different political leanings, and you bring them together in one body, and they genuinely love one another for the sake of Christ and the on-watching world of demons and angels, says, that's amazing that they love one another. Because out in the world, they hate one another, but in the church, they love one another. And then Satan says, I know how to ruin this. Let's have just as much disdain for one another in the church as there is in the world. And then God doesn't get any glory amongst the demons and the angels. Right? Um, let me ask you a question. Is God more glorified when Christians find a church with people who are just like them or they find people within the church who are just like them and they just hang out with those people? That's option A. Or is God more glorified when Christians say, boy, there are a lot of different people, different personality styles, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different education, but they love Jesus, so I love them. Which one is more glorifying to God? B, yes, you got that right, B. Okay. Yet, the whole uh, the whole, uh, I shouldn't say the whole, but a, a huge paradigm of church growth is group people together who are homogeneous, who are just like one another because they have natural affinities. So you got the church growth strategy versus what glorifies God most. Okay, I sent out uh, a while back, there was that video of Piper. He was preaching on Psalm 16.3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And um, he says, what if you're sitting here today and you go, I just really don't like Christians. I don't like Christians. I'd rather hang out with my non-Christian friends. So he asked two questions. Question one, do you know any real Christians? Not just churchgoers, but 
radical people who are willing to lay down their lives, live for Christ, not for themselves, radical people, where Jesus means everything to them. Because you know what? You may be saying, I don't like Christians, and it's not Christians you don't like. It's just churchgoers you don't like. So he gives you the out. The out is maybe the Christians you don't like aren't really Christians. But then he asks the killer question. Why would it be that you, a professing Christian, would find more joy in people who find no joy in the one who is your primary joy? In other words, he's saying you're not a Christian if you don't love other Christians. You're not a Christian. So here's the question: Will I choose to love those outside of my comfort zone, or will I do the safe, comfortable, worldly thing? Okay. Last thing, last square in the puzzle: service. You know, um, I have different titles, but the, the title I hate the most is when people refer to me as the minister. First of all, I don't like the, I don't like the image of the guy in the collar with the robe and sprinkling things. I don't know what ministers do, okay? But... The idea that the pastor, pastors, are the ministers gives the idea that we're the performers and you're the spectators. Right? And here's what the Bible says, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, what do all these people have in common? These are the teachers of the word of God. Right? So he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, that's everybody, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Nowhere in the Bible is there the idea that one or just a handful of people are the ministers who do the ministry. In fact, it's the teachers of the Word of God, the, the coaches who are equipping the players to do the ministry. That's the picture. And you say, well, I just have never seen it that way. You need to change the way you think. From your church background to biblical thinking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the church, a local church, is equated to a picture of a human body. And um, in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, To each, each one, no exceptions, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what that's saying is every single one of you has a spiritual gift. It's not yours. God gave the gift to the church, and you're to use it to serve others. And to not serve is to steal from the church. Right? I've used this illustration before. Let's say I'm walking out and somebody says, Hey, Pastor, I missed the offering. Could you make sure this gets in the, the plate? And somebody gives me a $100 bill. 
And I go, okay. And I think to myself, well, I'm part of this church. $100, and I put that in my pocket. I have just stolen from the church. If you have a gift, and you do, Scripture says you have a gift, and you're not serving in some capacity, and we're going to talk about this next week, how, you say, how do I get involved? Okay, because we have an obligation to provide opportunities for everybody to get involved, and we're going to talk about that next week. Okay, But every Christian has an, op, uh, an, an obligation to discover their gift to serve others in the body of Christ. How are you doing that? You go, I don't like this pressure. I'm going to go find me a church where I don't have to serve. That's fine, but you're still accountable before God to use the gift you've been given to serve. So you can hide out. You can find a non-law gospel preaching church that, where you'll never feel convicted. You can find a church built on cliques and socioeconomic uh, small groups where you just hang around people who are just like you and you don't have to deal with riffraff. Okay? Uh, you can find a church where baptism, hey, you know, we hype you up and try and convince you, to, but it's never preached as a command. And you can find a church where you don't have to do anything. It's not a church, but you can feel good about that. Or you can say, Jesus died for me on the cross. My whole life is now serving him. And one way to do that is by serving his church. Really, it kind of boils down to this. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Joshua said to the people of Israel, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, uh, and, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. He's saying, if you don't want to do it, then go. go but, but don't call yourself a follower of the true God. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose. Either you're in or you're out. Either I'm a follower of Christ or I'm not. And if I am a follower of Christ, then there are some implications and obligations that flow from that. If I'm not, then let's not pretend. Walk away. Deny the faith. Turn your back on Christ. That's what this verse is calling for. But he says, as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Fathers, as, can you say that? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can you lead? Can you take responsibility and say, as for my house, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to take a big percentage of my income and rather than spend it on family vacation, I'm going to give it to the church. I'm going to serve in a ministry. I'm going to love those people whether they're comfortable or not. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, do your work of conviction, encouragement, of movement in our hearts. Lord, show us. Um, give us discerning hearts to, to be able as your sheep to hear your voice through true preaching. 
Show those of us who are truly yours that we need to step up and get baptized. Give us a love for one another that the world marvels at. And show us where we're to serve. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.